that's going to be too low. Okay. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as ransom for many. Thank you. That verse, uh, verse 45, the Son of Man came to be served, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, uh, that might be the mountaintop verse in all of Mark. So thanks, Dylan, for letting me do that one. Uh, normally he gives us the ones that are really tough, but this is great. So it's almost like, no, I'll stop. I have a lot of good illustrations. I'll have a lot of sports illustrations too. I like sports, but, um, I do want to say really quick by way of encouragement that last week after the rich young ruler passage and Jesus talking about the, the idol of money in that, in that particular man's life, um, we got to go in, and, and just how what we worship uh, shows, you know, who our, who our God is and, or what our God might be. And we got to go into an elders meeting afterwards, and, you know, part of that, which I normally don't pay attention to is, no offense, guys, is the money part. And it was so cool to sit in after seeing that and talking about how what we do with our money is worship, too, just as much as corporate worship, to sit in there and to have a surplus of money because you guys are so generous in the middle of the crisis going on in our place, that we got to sit in there and give more money to the different ministries we support, that was so encouraging. And so I asked the guys, like, can I encourage you guys too? Because that's really encouraging to me, and you may not know that, but that's where we're at. And so thank you for the encouragement and the worship that you guys, um, day in and day out, uh, when you follow God, that encourages people. And people, know, like, across the, across the board, the kingdom is encouraged by that because of the heart that God has put inside of you. My goal today is we're going to end at 45. That last verse is, uh, like I said, it's the pinnacle, uh, and it's really an immense verse, and we're going, to, we're going to work our way to it. My hope is along the way that we'll see some things about ourself, and we'll see some things about God. As you can probably guess, the things we see about ourselves aren't the greatest, uh, but the good news is the stuff we see about God is really, really great. Uh, but the thing that makes 45, verse 45 so important is it's the first time we see the why Jesus came. And you and I know the why. We're past the, the crucifixion. We've, we've heard the end of the story, but they don't. If you're reading Mark for the first time, this is the very first time that Jesus gives us the why that he's going to die. He's given us, this is the third time he's predicted his passion, which is his, his death and resurrection. Third time in three chapters he's predicted. He's never given us the why today. So we get to look at that, and it's pretty cool. If you've ever studied in the scriptures, uh, Judges is a really good example of a cycle. Uh, and, and God sometimes does this in, in the writers. When they write, they, they'd use this device that, that would help us uh, maybe get into our head a little bit more what, what's going on. And in Judges, there's this cycle where the people sin, 
And then they get oppressed by some foreign God, and then they cry out. They're like, we'll never do it again. And then God sends a judge to deliver them, then they do it again. And it's, you guys know that it's a cycle, right? So in Mark 8, 9, and 10, in, in today's passage in particular, it's the third part of a cycle. Mark 8, there's a cycle. Mark 9, there's a cycle. And Mark 10, there's a cycle. And the thing, the cycle is this. Step one, Jesus predicts his death. This is the third time he's done it. I think I have a little uh, picture for you up there I wrote. I'm not, I'm not very good with graphics, but I tried. Um, and step two is after he predicts his death is that the disciples say something really stupid. And, and I mean really stupid. Like there's not a better word for it. I tried to think of a nicer word. Maybe really ignorant. I don't know. It's just really dumb as you saw. Um, and that's, that's us, right? And then step three is that Jesus calls his people in and he teaches them about the kingdom. And normally uh, this step three is, is something about uh, being a servant and the sacrifice, but just the upside down kingdom is, is the picture of it. And that's our pattern today. Uh, if you wanted to break our passage up, which it doesn't always do that, but today it breaks up real nice. From 32 to 34 is that step one where Jesus predicts his death. And then from about verse 35 to 41, the disciples say something really stupid and Jesus corrects them lovingly. And then in 45 or 42 to 45, he actually teaches us about the upside down kingdom, the humility and service. And so part one, let's look at verse 32 to 34 again. Um, I'm not going to reread it. Uh, I'm not nearly good of a reader as Sarah, so I'm going to let it stand there. But you can look there on the screen. The thing I want you guys to point out in this third passion prediction from Jesus is that there's a couple unique uh, elements. And one of them is that this is the first time he said, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And that's a really bad deal for a Jew uh, for a couple reasons. You don't want the Gentiles to have control of your fate, but also at that time, and maybe it's starting to register a little bit with the disciples, at that time, you know, the Jews could not put somebody to death. So when Jesus says, I'll be handed over to the Gentiles, and then they're going to mock, spit, and flog, um, and all the terrible things that go on, go on that that's, uh, takes it up a notch. And he tells them it's going to be in Jerusalem. And the odd thing about that is they're like heading to, to Jerusalem. So that's the first time he said that, and they're like, dude, we're 20 miles away. Walk in that direction. What's going on? You kind of see why they're starting to fear a little bit uh, in the passage there. And then uh, it says also that, you know, like I said in the previous Passion Predictions, it said that Israel and the chief priests would reject him. But like I said, the first time the, uh, the mention of Gentiles would kill, uh, to, would kill him. But the other thing I think about this little step one of this uh, cycle that's really strange is that Jesus is walking out ahead of them. After he's predicted this, he's walking out ahead of them. And he doesn't do this. There's not another time in Mark where it's talking about him leading the pack, so to speak, except for a couple of prophecies later on that aren't talking about this. When we see Jesus, a lot of times I kind of picture him, uh, they're in a group and he's normally the dude that's kind of sauntering along, like healing people, teaching, doing those. He's normally telling other people to kind of chill out a little bit or, you know, smell the roses. That's kind of Jesus' MO a lot of times to be present, but not here. He is going. And the reason that's really unique is he's going to his death. So what he's doing is he's striding out to Jerusalem and he's leading the pack. And this is why the disciples are freaked out because no one strides out on the way to the death chamber, right? Uh, A famous movie. I know there's a couple Tom Hanks fans in here, uh, but (laughs) Green Mile. You ever seen Green Mile? Uh, If you're young, don't watch it yet. Um, When you're older, it's about the death death penalty and the hallway that they walk down from the cells on the, on the, on death row to the actual death chamber is called the Green Mile, but just because the floor is painted green. And it's not a mile, it's a few steps. But it feels like a mile, because you don't want to go there, right? You're just like, ah, here it is. See you guys, right? And it's the Green Mile, because it feels so long. That's not this, though. You see the difference here is Jesus has a purpose. He's like, I'm going to my death. And that's a really big deal, because he has a purpose for his death, which we see in verse 45 is a ransom and a substitution. And that freaks the disciples out. But if you'll look at this verse in Isaiah 50, this is fulfilling a prophecy. In verse six and seven, it said, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. And the reason that's awesome is that he understands that he's setting his face like flint towards this danger that awaits him in Jerusalem because he has a higher calling. He knows he's been called by God um, to do something that's a little bit different. And we can emulate this in Jesus because we all have a higher purpose. We have a purpose, and that is to fulfill the Great Commission. When we have... um, the cybers up here and say, you're sent, and we're talking about the reason we can say there's something else down the road is because we know there's a higher purpose, and it's not to just huddle up. 
and stay safe all the time. We also might face the same fate that Jesus did when he faced danger because he has a higher purpose. So when he is heading to the, the death chamber, so to speak, we don't want to just like pass over it and act like it's not a big deal. That's actually um, a lot of lessons we can learn in that. I think especially right now in our society as we try to discern what risks are okay and what risks aren't, we need to remember who we actually fear. We fear God above all. There was a really famous hymn about this. It says, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear." And then grace my fears relieved, right? How beautiful is that line? Way better than I could ever write. So part one of the cycle in Mark 8, 9, and 10 is Jesus predicting his death. But part two, as we said, is the disciples normally say something that's very, very foolish. So they do. Uh, They ask to sit at the right and the left of Jesus. Uh, But I do want to say, before we tear into James and John too much, that's us in the story, okay? Jesus is Jesus in the story. The humans is us. Uh, So we don't want to just throw stones that aren't going to land on us too. We need to think, how are we doing the same thing whenever we talk to Jesus? Um, In verse 35, actually, if you look, I have a slide. um, It's a couple slides down. Look at Mark 9, 34. I want to look at the last time he does this when he tells them uh, he's going to die. So flip back one, one chapter in your Bibles to verse 34, 9, 34, and 35. But they kept silent. Uh, Basically, they'd been arguing about who was the greatest. They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said, if anyone will be the first, he'll be last of all and the servant of all. Basically, what Jesus is doing is he's walking along, last chapter, and he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? Because he knows, right? And they're like, nothing. Which is funny. If you're a teacher or you have kids and you catch them doing something wrong, what are you guys doing? Nothing. That's exactly what they do. Nothing. No, you did something. You were trying to figure out who was better in the kingdom, which is pretty hilarious. And Jesus is like, that's not what we're going to do. That's not very long ago. What I'm trying to point out, that's not very long ago. That's a few days ago. And James and John, on top of that, Peter, James, and John are like the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. They should know better. So when they walk up a few days later and say this, hey, um, can we sit at your right and left uh, with that terrible question? Hey, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. That... Maybe I just had really good parents. I think I did, actually. But I would never, if I ever walked up to my mom and dad, was like, hey, can, before I ask you this, can you just say yes? You know that's not going to work, right? You'll probably get a, you know, one of those. Uh, but no one gives a blank check to someone that immature. But Jesus, he, he asked this question back to them that's really motive revealing. Like he did last week when the rich young ruler, uh, when he said, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor because he knew that dude's idol. That's, that's kind of what he does right here. He asks this question that I always pass over and I shouldn't. Uh, but the question he says is, what do you want me to do for you? And that's a question I want you to think about. It's actually the same question he's going to ask next week when we talk about Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus comes up and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? But Bartimaeus's request is made out of faith. And the point of this passage today is that James and John, who's not blind, by the way, they ask a question that's all about power and privilege and uh, position. And I think if we can ask ourselves this question, uh, what do you want Jesus to do for you, uh, and, and then answer it, if we find that it's, the answer to that question is that we want to bring glory or comfort or ease, blessing to ourselves and ourselves alone, we need to ask God to kind of reorient our heart like, like he's going to do with James and John here. Um, and to sit at the right and the left is something you guys have probably heard a lot. That's where the prestigious people sit in the kingdom. So in Psalm 110.1, it actually talks about Jesus. Uh, if you look there on the slide, it says, uh, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So when you sit at the right and the left, you're like a son. you got the king's ear. Um, you have power and privilege, prominence, and everyone wants to have the ear of somebody in high places. It's just... Natural in us, it seems. I would, once again, uh, if you watch on ESPN2, there's, there's a version of The Last Dance that doesn't have cuss words in it. Uh, and I've been watching that a little bit with my kids and kind of showing them this, the Michael Jordan, like, why was he so great? What's the good and what's the bad, you know? One thing I've noticed about that documentary uh, is that when he has, these four, he has these four security guards, and they're really close to him. One of them's like his dad, actually. He got really close to him when his dad passed away. But they really liked to be around Michael Jordan and Ahmad Rashad, too. Uh, if you're my age, you know how he was always like the, he kissed Michael's throne all the time and everyone would make fun of him. But they sit in the back. All of these scenes in The Last Dance, uh, they're sitting in the back, and Michael Jordan is 
in this room all by himself. It's the locker room. Everyone else is in the locker room, and he's just in his own room. He's Michael Jordan. And he has these four security guys around him all the time, and they're like, hey, Michael, what do you think about this? And they're just doing whatever he says to do. It's really kind of like this. It's like they want to sit close to power and prominence because they like to feel important. And so when he goes out, and they're like, out of the way. No, no, don't touch Mike, you know? And they're, they're really close, but it's the same exact thing that we naturally want to do is we like to be around someone who's, quote, the king. No one's out there, if you've watched it, they always make fun of this guy on the team named Scotty Burrell. No one's around his locker. They're always around Michael Jordan's locker, who's actually in the back uh, being the king. And those guys feel really cool, and that's what James and John want to do uh, because that's what happens in this world. And, and James Edwards, this author, had a really good quote on this, and he said, In the church, how easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest. Or worse, self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship, like James and John are doing here. Um, They're trying to be like the world in power and privilege, and Jesus is really, really patient with his response. He doesn't say, you know, that's the worst question a creature could have ever uttered. he doesn't say, dude, I just said I'm going to die, and the question you ask is, can we be on your right and left, which is really insensitive, I think. He doesn't say that. He just says, you don't know what you're asking, and they don't. That's what, You guys laughed when Sarah read, yeah, we're able to drink that cup. It's funny because it's so dumb that they would think that they could drink the cup of wrath that Jesus is going to drink. And so that cup, I do want to explain those two words really quick. The cup of wrath is something that's an Old Testament idea and so when you see that word cup in the Old Testament, it's, it's an, the suffering and judgment is what comes up. Look at Psalm 75, 8 with me. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You don't want the cup, right? Like, that's not a good thing. And then again in Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs every drop, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Basically, it's saying that Israel drank so deeply from the wrath of God that they're drunk on this wrath, right? They're staggering around like a drunk because they had to drink to the dregs or he's going to. But the thing is, is that Jesus comes in, he says, I'm going to drink that cup for you which is really cool. We, we celebrate that at communion. We take the cup. We don't actually take, a lot of times we say, uh, in, in my mind growing up, I was like, oh yeah, it's the bread and the, and the wine or grape juice in some cases, right? It's not, those aren't the elements. The elements are the bread and the cup because we're supposed to think of the wrath uh, of God that is poured out, the bitter wrath that he drank down to the dregs for us. And John and James have no idea what they're asking. Now the word baptism here is not used in a positive way either. This is kind of like in our society when we say someone's baptized by fire, we're saying that's overwhelming, right? It's, uh, it's too much. That's kind of what, what this means. The word literally is uh, full immersion. Baptizo means full immersion. So when Jesus says, I'm going to be fully immersed and overwhelmed in the flood of this task, this ransom task I'm about to complete. So it's, when you think about those words a little bit deeper, James and John can't drink that cup. Yes, we're able to. I almost think that there's like girls around or something and they're showing up, like, I just get this picture that maybe they're, uh, they go to every town and, you know, they're always around Jesus like the security guards and they're feeling pretty cool. And, and Jesus says, are you able? And, yeah, we're able. And I mean, you can, I don't know, that might be reading a little bit too much in, but I wonder why they would say that until we look at our own hearts, right? Like we, we do the same thing in many ways. Um, but now I do want to explain this. They are, Jesus says you do have to drink that cup, but he's not talking about drinking the cup of wrath from God, because they're not a perfect sacrifice like Jesus is. The, the way that they drank the cup uh, is that what that means is that they had to um, suffer later on in their life, and they do. We know that James and John actually meet a fate by by suffering when they follow Jesus, and so James is is killed in Acts twelve, has his head chopped off, uh, and John dies in exile on the island of Patmos because of his faith. So they do drink it in a sense, but not in the sense that we're talking about. Um, what they've done here is they've mistaken Jesus' kingdom and what it might look like. They're ready for this messianic war with Rome. They think that, okay, he's saying some really interesting stuff. This is the third time in a row he said this. Um, They think that if they suffer for this cause of Jesus, that on the other side, they'll be able to be at the right and the left hand so they can have that power and privilege. Um, And so that, that is probably their answer, I think is the best way to say it. That's their answer for what do you want me to do for you? They want power and privilege. 
Now, Tim Keller says, uh, the natural bent of the human heart is to use God as a need meter. And any person who only sticks with Christianity as long as things are going his or her way is a stranger to the cross. Right here, James and John are trying to use Jesus as a, a need meter. They want they have a certain need, which is power, privilege, you know, have the ear of the king. And if Jesus doesn't meet that, they run. We see this a lot of times. This is kind of like the parable of the sower. If you ever met anyone that like is really fired up for Christ and they really want to follow Christ, but then it doesn't actually end up like what they thought it was going to end up, that's because they were using Christ to get something else. They didn't see Christ for who he was. Uh, and ironically, I don't want to pass up before I get to the last um, section here. I don't want to pass up this little point. The only time, they say, I want to be on the right and left of Jesus. The only time in Mark that term is used, the right and the left of Jesus, is at the crucifixion. It's talking about the criminals who are on the right and the left of Jesus. So they really don't know what they're asking. I want to be on your right and left. And Jesus is like, well, okay, if you really want that. And they do. Like I said, James is killed later on and John is, is close to it. He's exiled. So Jesus says, you know, it's not... My, uh, it's not my decision who sits on my right and left. And then you see the other 10, they get really mad. In, in fact, the word is indignant. And we saw this word indignant a couple weeks ago when Jesus has the little kids uh, and the disciples are keeping them from coming to him and Jesus is indignant. That's, that's the same word, except that was a holy indignance. This is not. They're not indignant for the right reasons. Uh, context and, and other things will tell us that they're actually mad that the James and John beat them to the punch because they wanted the same thing. So don't think that the disciples got it. They're, they're not, the 10, they're not really sensitive. Like, I can't believe you'd ask that question. After Jesus said he was gonna die, then you just walk up and say you wanna be on his right and left. That's so insensitive, how dare you? They actually are mad that, dude, I wanted to ask that question. I wanted to be with Jesus on the other side. Um, and that's not a pretty thing. It's not, once again, the humans in the text today, as always, are not the heroes. But we have a great hero that will uh, bury that burden for us. And, and this actually, we know, when, when humans start to do this and, and fight for power and privilege in any sort of setting, Christian or non-Christian, but especially here, it just leads to jealousy and turmoil in the ranks. Uh, David Garland, its author, said uh, that James and John, they were mad because James and John may have an edge over them for the power slots. Jealousy creates turmoil in the ranks, and the disciples would rather bear a grudge than a cross. And I think that this can happen so easily uh, whether it's in the church setting or any sort of Christian setting, uh, we have to fight the pride underneath the idea that, uh, of wanting influence in Jesus' kingdom because Jesus' kingdom is upside down, right? The way up is down. And Jesus is going to talk about in a second, he's going to contrast that. He's going to talk about how the way the world operates, but I hope it will become super clear that the way that the church operates, Christ's bride, does not look like the world. It can't. Inside the church, it cannot look like there's not a CEO in a church, right? Unless it's Jesus. There's not, there's, this isn't a company. There's not ambition to like rise higher in the ladder in God's economy. That's not how it works. Unless you're just trying to serve and be a, a slave of other people. We have to see there's no warrant for that sort of attitude in God's kingdom uh, to advance yourself. Uh, and that kind of leads us to part three of the cycle, Mark 8, 9, and 10. Uh, remember, cycle, part one, Jesus predicts his death. Part two, disciples say something dumb. Part three, and this is really where we're going to land today, he calls them in lovingly, and he gently kind of describes what his kingdom looks like. So that's here in verse 42. He's been striding out towards Jerusalem, and you see him just kind of stop. Hey, let's talk for a second. This is like when you get your kid, and you kind of put your hands right here, and you get eye to eye with them, and you're trying to say, this is what I'm trying to tell you. This is really important. So let's read verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. I mentioned David Garland. He had another quote that was great. He says, Jesus says the desire to dominate others is pagan. Pagans want seats of power, and they want to lord it over others. And the disciples have taken pagan rulers as their models. And I think, as I thought about this this week, my own personal confession, confession is that I have done that pretty awfully. Like, I thought, as a football coach, a lot of times I'll motivate myself and then try to motivate the team to just not like another team just because of where they're from. Like, that's our enemy. We're going to crush them. 
And, you know, you can play football and not have that attitude, right? I know that's hard to believe. Um, I've seen it done, though. Like, you have a superior motive. The superior motive is to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ, who is why we live and breathe and have our, meet, our, our being, right? And so what we do a lot of times is, and my kids, the thing that hit me hard is that my own players joke about that. They're like, why do you hate that town so much? And I'm like, I don't. They're just playing us this week. And they pick up on it. They, they pick up on the fact that I like, we're going to dominate them. And, and they're like, what? Why don't you just play the game and play it hard and play it rough like it's meant to be played, but you don't have to do what Gentile leaders do and put your you know, foot on their throat, so to speak, and, and then like to denigrate them as human beings and not even treat them as if they're made in the image of God. That's really convicting. I can't tell you how many times my players and other coaches are like, man, all right, let's, uh, let's ease off there, right? Um, William's laughing back there. You know what I'm talking about. See, I'm sorry. I'm telling on myself. It's not good, though. It's, not, it's kind of funny, but it's also really sick. And it's in all of us in a sense. Like, that's what we do to seek power. Um, and and I, I, I had to confess that. But James Edwards says this. He says, uh, at no place do the ethics of the kingdom of God clash more vigorously than the ethics of the world, than in the matters of power and service. And so what I wanted to do is to show you a couple of famous world leaders and then contrast them to what Jesus says about power and service. And so the first one I have up here, uh, Genghis Khan, or is it Genghis Khan? Ryan, world history. It's Genghis. It's like GIF and JIF, isn't it? Um, no, okay. So this is what Genghis Khan said. The greatest happiness is to vanquish your enemies, to chase them before you, to rob them of your wealth, to see those, who, uh, to see those dear to them bathed in tears, to clasp to your bosom their wives and daughters. That is brutal, right? That's the world's idea of power and privilege and how you get it, Right? Chairman Mao, responsible for anywhere, at least 30 million of his own people in communist China killed because of him. Maybe up to 80 million, we think. He says that political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. If you're a philosophy type, Nietzsche says in the 19th century, he said, what distinguishes man from animals is not our ability to think, but the will to power, the drive within every human being to conquer, to climb the ladder, to reach the highest place of exaltation, Right? You can see Jesus, how he directly, diametrically opposes this idea. And one more, there's one from our uh, leader in our uh, current world, said, show me someone without an ego and I'll show you a loser. Um, so you can figure out that one. But for the disciples, as Jesus is contrasting the harsh Gentile rule, the thing that's like, the thing that's funny about the disciples, or funny or ironic in a way, about what the disciples are doing is they don't really like the Gentiles. They hate the Gentile rulers. They're, they're sitting here saying, like, I don't want them, I want to kill them, but at the same time, they're doing exactly what the Gentile rulers are doing. They would have all had coins in their pocket, uh, Roman coins. At this moment, copper coins that had, I, I show a picture of it there, has the emperor's face on it. And the emperor's face and, and the thing says, he who deserves adoration. They, they were swimming. What I'm trying to say is they were swimming in this idea of power. And we do too. We swim in these waters just like they did. And so this is just as effective of a word from Jesus to us as it is to them. We have Jesus saying, if you want to be great, you must be a, a diakonos. That the word deacon comes from that. And the word deacon, diakonos, literally means to wait tables. If you want to be great, you wait tables. And then he even deepens it and he used the word for bondservant right after it. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said it like this, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. And I think it makes sense that if we do want to have influence in the kingdom, it makes total sense that the centerpiece of our faith is a man that died for his enemies, that influence would actually be achieved through service and not power and prestige, which turns into manipulation and control. And that leads us to verse 45 which is the penultimate verse in our text today, and, and like I said, quite possibly the theme verse of Mark. And it says, the, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I was talking to Dylan Thursday. I think every single word in this uh, verse right here could be a sermon. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go really fast. Don't worry. 
But it is insane how deep this verse is. And I didn't understand that at first. When I first read that, hey, this sermon could be the, or this verse could be the theme, I was like, oh, yeah, that's pretty nice. Then I got into it, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, every single word has so much to it. This whole idea of Jesus being the son of man, which is his favorite term for himself. Dylan's taught good on this, or taught well, sorry. Uh, this Daniel 7 prophecy where, where Jesus is saying, I am the son of man. I am that guy, the one who had to be the... Uh, priest between God the Holy Father and, and these sinful humans. That's why he calls himself the Son of Man. But the thing that's cool is that the Son of Man came to us. So right off the bat, we have to realize that he's way different than us. Like you and I popped up in the earth. I don't know. God did it, right? You're a lottery winner, right? Um, God was sovereign over all of that. We popped up in this world. We had no choice in it. But Jesus did have a choice. So right off the bat, we see the Son of Man came and he did not stay on his throne, he decided to descend to us, he condescended to us, and he did not, as Philippians 2 says, count equality with God something to be held onto and just kept to himself, which is kind of what most, most people do with power. He took the form of that same word we just read, doulos, which means bondservant. He became born in the likeness of man, humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he came to us, chose to come to us, and he didn't come to be served. All other kings in the world always came to be served. He came to serve us. So when we read, if we would not have got to verse 45, so far that really, verse 44 is a really, really radical call to how to live. I just kind of walked us through how we're really terrible at that. And if we don't get to verse 45, that's a really terrible mistake. If We think we can just ethically do that. The whole idea is we cannot do that. So we really need 45 to be there. We really need the Son of Man coming to serve us, or it's really, really bad news. They're, they're not going to answer this radical call. Um, John Piper has a good quote about this. He says, this is the heart of Christianity. This is what sets our faith off from all of other major religions. Our God does not need our service, nor is he glorified by recruits who want to help him out. Our God is so full and so self-sufficient and so overflowing in power and life and joy that he glorifies himself by serving us. And I have to share this next quote. It's long and I don't care. It's so good. It was a knife in my heart this week. A.W. Tozer, you guys know, some of you guys know him, great author. He says this, Almighty God, just because he's almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see today. We commonly represent him as a, be, a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking to help out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. The God who worketh all things surely needs no help and no helpers. Too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite in his hearers, not only for the heathen, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them, but has failed for lack of support. I fear that thousands of young persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than just to help deliver God from this embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Add to this a certain degree of commendable idealism and a fair amount of compassion for the underprivileged and you have the true drive for what is behind much Christian activity today. That, like I said, carved my heart this week. We can't, we can't have that set of us that we're, we're serving Jesus. Now, I'll talk about that in a second. Yes, we serve in one sense, but not like this. He doesn't need us. He came to serve us. So the local church sojourn could not exist tomorrow, and God's plan is not thwarted. He has a plan. He's going to fulfill his plan. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. And that's beautiful. That's the gospel, right? You can't do 44. Verse four. You can't do that ethic unless God comes and he meets you at that place and says, I'm going to do it for you. And that is beauty. That's the beauty of the gospel. And we would, we'd be dead if 45 did not exist. In fact, we, we try to live it all the time, though. We hear these great things from Jesus, all these awesome moral, because we know it's true. We know that's how he wired the world. We know that those ethics are, like, beautiful to, in real life, and then we just try to do them on ourselves instead of, like, relying on him, and we end up frustrating ourselves or becoming really prideful in ourselves when other people can't do it how we do it, right? Thank God for the gospel, when he, now, I do want to clarify. He does call us servants of Christ twice in Scripture, um, Romans 1.1 1, 1, and in John 13.16. But the idea there is 
using servant in a totally different way. He uses servant in those places in the sense that he's our authority. He can tell us whatever to do, whatever he wants us to do. So we are a servant in that way. Like you're a peon and he tells you to do something, you go do it. You're not a peon. You're made in God's image and he loves you. Don't hear me. But you know what I'm saying? That's how servant is used in those passages is that he gets to tell you what to do. He, it's never used in this context and anywhere else in the sense that he needs anything from us. In fact, Paul preaches this in Acts 17 when he's at Athens and he sees all these false gods and they're all trying to appease their God. He walks in and he goes, hey, I wanna tell you something. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. I am so thankful to serve a God like that in the right sense, right? Like him telling me what to do. And... That brings us to the last word, ransom. That's why I asked Daniel to sing that last song. Um, when at last, I song all the ransom home to bring, I forget the words. Hallelujah, what a savior, right? Um, he, stood, uh, he stood in our place, condemned he stood. I'm so bad at like, memory, I should have just got your things. Uh, but the whole idea that he is in our place, and we're gonna sing about it again afterwards, uh, is one of the most beautiful and most lofty ideas because it's an idea of a substitute. This is not ransom like we use it today, like it's a kidnapping. And Liam Neeson, you kidnapped his daughter and you got to pay him, you know, he's going to pay you back. That's not how it works. This ransom is a lot different. This is actually means substitute. And the way, the way the word was used back then was kind of a payment, prisoner of war um, or a slave was in bondage. And it's a debt that they could never have repaid. And they, it wasn't just money that would repay it anyway. It was a life, right? And so when we see this word right here, ransom, what, this, what it's saying is, and I think you guys understand this part of the gospel, is that that's something that you could not have paid. The word for means literally instead of. So it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's substitution. People have tried to uh, replace this. They, don't, they want to explain their way around it. The fact that Jesus paid our debt by substituting his life in our place. And so a couple popular ways people try to explain this away is by saying, ah, atonement, you don't need a substitute. That's like this, I don't know, old view of God. And God's not mean like that. Uh, he doesn't need someone to appease his wrath. They don't like to talk about wrath in our society, but the Bible does. And I, I guess what I would say to that is that just... The language in the Bible doesn't allow for it, first of all. It's just not even a, a thing if you want to be honest with the text. Um, I think people really don't want to think about how bad they are. I, I think that we really don't want to think that we need a substitute. And so when someone doesn't have place in their view of atonement for, for God's wrath, um, we have a, a more fundamental issue. But what... The other thing we, we see sometimes is people would say that Jesus paid the ransom to Satan and not to God the Father. And as we've seen so far, there's 300 Old Testament prophecies of Jesus saying he's going to die, and then he does it exactly like the prophecy says. We've seen in this, in this text how he set his heart and set his face like flint towards death. So if, if it was paying it to ransom uh, to Satan, sorry, then it, Satan would have some sort of control, but we know that he has no control, even though he, think, he thinks he's did. Um, and, and we know that if Jesus was going to pay a ransom to Satan, then he wouldn't be giving Satan a boot to the head, right? You don't pay someone that you can kill with a word. You don't need to do, pay that ransom. We know that Jesus is paying the ransom to God. And I, want, I don't want to have that weak view of God uh, that God the Father didn't need a ransom because he did. And Jesus was that. So uh, I do, before I kind of close, I wanted to point out something along these lines. Uh, Tim Keller, if you're reading that little book, Jesus is King, that goes along with Mark, he has a really good differentiation. And I think it's worth uh, repeating here. I also have to say this. If you read Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant passage, it is beautiful. It's all over Mark. Jesus is fulfilling all these prophecies, and the fingerprints of Isaiah 52 and 53 are all over it. I just couldn't go there today for time's sake. But in home group, it's part of your questions. Please, please. Jump into that because you see some unbelievable things um, in Isaiah 52 and 53. But one thing that Tim Keller says is that at first glance, it, it kind of sounds that G, the idea of playing a, a blood sacrifice to God, a wrathful God, sounds ancient and primitive and like these bloodthirsty gods you see on uh, movies and things like that. Like you're watching, uh, what's that Mel Gibson movie, Apocalypto, you know, where they're throwing people in the, throwing virgins in the volcano and you know, shedding blood down the pyramids. Like a lot of people think that that, like, how could that be the Christian God? He's more about love, right? Um, and there's a long answer to that. We probably need to have coffee to talk about the whole thing. 
But the thing is, is that a good God has to punish evil. Logically, he has to punish evil. And a lot of times we say, well, I do want that. I want my God to punish evil. But then we don't go the next step and realize, like, we're the evil ones. There's evil out there, too, and we want God to punish it, but we don't think we're bad. And so part one of this is we would have to be eradicated if we really wanted that. That's not good news. That's really bad news. So we have this God, and this is part two, the way our God handled that problem, the triune God, is he steps in and says, so I'll be your substitute. No other, all those ancient primitive gods where they're, you know, throwing people in volcanoes and, you know, trying to, oh man, we didn't get rain this year. I must need to sacrifice my child to the rain God and maybe I'll get rain. Instead, we have Jesus who steps in for us. There's no other religion that does that. And it's the beauty of the real religion. And it's life changing. This idea of self-sacrificing, substitute, that's what real love is. That sort of love actually changes people. You guys know this. If anyone has changed your life through love, it's because they sacrificed it wasn't, it wasn't because you were easy to love. And like, if you're, if you don't have someone sacrifice for you, think about, you know, a mom and her kids and the sacrificial love and dads too. Like I see that every day in my home. I see my wife sacrificially love her kids and it changes my wife's or my kids' lives. And we all know this. Um, some of you are Harry Potter fans. I'm not, but in that Keller book, he talks about it. Uh, I know a lot of you guys are, and that's cool. So are my kids. But one thing he says, he has a quote from that book that He's trying to point out that even non-Christians understand that this is the life-changing sort of love, this substitutionary love. And so there's this quote, this Voldemort possessed villain tries to lay hands on Harry, but he can't. And I don't know these guys. You guys know the, I just don't know them. Sorry. I'm, I'm trying to give a Harry Potter example because I know that you would, um, or Lord of the Rings. But Harry asked Dumbledore, I guess that's his mentor, right? Okay. He asked Dumbledore, like, why, why can this guy not lay his hands on me? And, and Dumbledore says, Harry, your mother died to save you. Love is powerful as your mother's love for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply with love gives us protection forever. This substitutionary. My favorite one uh, is The Dark Knight. If you guys have ever seen that movie? At the end, when Batman, you guys know Harvey Dent, is like the good guy, he's supposed to be good, and he's the DA, he's gonna save Gotham, because Gotham is on the edge, Joker's got him right on the edge. And so he's gonna save, but then we find out that Joker turns him, becomes Two-Face, and, and he dies at the end, but he's killed five people. And so if Gotham finds out that Harvey Dent has killed five people, it'll just, it'll be done. And so only Batman and, uh, what's, the, what's the dude's name? Gordon, yeah. Only Batman and Gordon know that Harvey Dent is actually bad. And so Batman looks at him, Gordon, and says, you can't tell Gotham. You know, Gordon's like, what are we going to do now, right? We thought we were going to save Gotham, and now it's all going to turn. Everyone's going to kill each other, right? And uh, Batman's like, no, I'm whatever Gotham needs me to be. You tell him it was me. And then he, like, rides off. Wow, that's really bad. I'm going to cry about Batman. But he rides off, <laughs> and they're all just, like, chasing him. <laughs> they're all chasing him, and you just see Jesus in that, right? Like, all he did his whole life was try to help people. You know, he lost his parents. He, he had he, all he's trying to do is help Gotham, and they come after him to try to kill him because he has to, right? He has to be that. And this is a picture of substitution. When I saw it in the theater, though, this is what I'm trying to say. People don't, they know it. Christian or non-Christian, they know that view of love is the real one because they stood up and started clapping. They were, I've never been in a movie like that. And it ended, and everyone's like, oh, that's awesome. And I'm like, yeah, there were people with tears in their eyes. Probably not me, but it was... <laughs> It's a beautiful thing. And J.K. Rowling and Christopher Nolan, they can put their finger on that and they can write a story that, looks, that touches into that, but they do kind of stop short of showing what a substitutionary ransom actually goes the full way because what happens is that love rewinds the curse of death. And there's a really beautiful picture of it. And I'm going to show you a little clip of it because C.S. Lewis did, um, wrote this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in Narnia. Right, And so Edmund, this traitor, you hate Edmund in this movie. You're like, oh, that guy is such a jerk. So mean to little Lucy. <sighs> Lucy was sweet. And he's a traitor. He's literally trading his family to the white witch. And, uh, and what happens is he doesn't show up with his family. And so the white witch grabs him and is like about to kill him. And so Aslan shows up and he's like, no, substitute. I'm the substitute. You kill me instead. And the white witch is like, yeah, because if I can kill you, I, no one's going to stop me from killing them. Great idea. She thinks she's going to win. And so they do, they, they, you see the scene, it's a little frightening for kids, so I didn't put it on here, but you know, the White Witch um, kills Aslan, all those ghouls are screaming, they think they've won the, the war. And so this scene picks up the next morning, um, Lucy 
has been watching from a distance with her sister, and you see Aslan there on the stone table. And so I want you to see the picture of how it rewinds. Listen to the words about the deep magic. The White Witch didn't really understand the deep magic. So listen to the words as we watch this two-minute clip. When a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack, and even death itself would turn backwards. We sent the news that you were dead. Peter and Evan will have gone to war. We have to help them. We will, dear one, but not alone. Climb on my back. We have far to go, and little time to get there. You may want to cover your ears. That roar is awesome. When a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. That is beautiful. And all the stories of substitutionary atonement and sacrifice, ransom, the whole idea is that all those awesome things, we can't do them, but Christ did them for us. And not the table hasn't cracked, but the, the stone has rolled away, right? And we can walk in that. That is open to you. And our response is to give, that's why we're here this morning. We want to give God glory for that beautiful story, that he would do that for us. And I want to make sure that no one leaves here without thinking about if you've responded to that beautiful picture of grace. Um, so Ryan, if you'll come up and pray for us, uh, I hope that... Um, we can see the love of a Savior who would not demand holiness and then not become our substitute and ransom for us because that sort of love will change our lives and how we act both towards you know, our families but our community will be transformed. So, Ryan, would you come pray for us, please? Let's pray. Jesus, where would we be without your service, without your humility of condescending to us? You are a God, the only one in history who gets low. You're the God who gets his hands dirty and takes on human flesh to be abused and called demon-possessed, to be thought foolish and beaten and killed, all for people who 
think that we are gods. All for people who just want to use you for comfort and personal peace. And We're not heroes. We are traitors. We need to be rescued by you. And I'm so, so thankful that you have done that work of service that we cannot do for ourselves. And I pray for any soul, any eternal soul person in this room made in your image who will live forever with you or forever in hell. I pray that they would know who you are and that they would understand that sacrifice and they would come to you because they see your great love that you have for your creatures, that they would turn from their sin, they would turn from controlling their own lives and bow down before the king and kiss your throne. And God, for those of us who've done that, I pray we would become truly slaves of all, that we would not be fools trying to to get glory even for your work. We do that. We're that messed up. We try to do holy and godly things. We can look good for it and be praised. We're still gross, and we need you to keep changing us. Holy Spirit, will you purify our hearts so that the only thing we care about is your name, Jesus, being glorified on this earth. Will you take that thought out of our minds that we can change this world through power and influence and through uh, all all the silly ways that we try to manipulate people and control them. God, will you help us to get low like you, Jesus, and just be servants? And love people who hate us. Love people who think we are fools and, and hate us because they hate you. Even those people, we don't need to dominate. We need to serve them and love them and show them hearts that have been transformed by grace. You have to do that. You've already done the greatest work of, of saving us and atoning for our sin, but you have to keep working if we're going to be those kinds of people because it's not in our nature Will you humble us and will you give us a deep love for other people that flows out of your love for us, Jesus? Thank you for loving us. Thank you for not being chased away by our continued sin and ignorance and pride. Thank you for not giving up on us until we meet you face to face. Let us be useful to your kingdom, God. Let us be slaves of all. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.